You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So we're going to be in John chapter 6 first, beginning in verse 16. Follow along with me. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is going to be a timely um, miracle for us to look at here in a few minutes. Turn with me now to um, John chapter 9. It's a significant chunk of scripture, being verses 1 all the way through 41. And uh, just follow along with me. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Then parenthetically, in verse 22, John says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened, his, he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but... If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the gift of technology whereby your word can be preached and shared with many. We trust and know that your word is powerful, it is living, it is active, and it has a purpose, that you have a purpose to do work in our hearts, that you desire to draw all men to yourself, and that you use your word and the preaching of your word to do so. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would use your word and use my words um, to bring honor and glory to yourself and to draw us to you. I pray, Father, that you would do miraculous things this morning in people's lives. I pray, God, that you would meet us in the midst of the storm that we are um, currently walking through um, across the world. And I pray, Father, that you would step into the darkness of our hearts, that you would bring spiritual eyesight to those places where we are blind, that you would give brand new hearts this morning, that you would encourage and strengthen and even rebuke where needed. But I pray that you would do this, and I trust that you would. In Jesus' name.
Amen. So in uh, these two stories, um, what we have uh, is we have a description of Jesus and, uh, and his work in these um, two miracles. And what we see about Jesus is that he is powerful uh, over the forces of nature. Uh, and he is also the light of the world, right? Uh, he gives sight to those who have been living in spiritual darkness. This man in this story living in spiritual darkness and in darkness since birth. And here's the reality. Storms can be really scary. Um, darkness can be very scary too. Um, if, I know that there are nights where I've been woken up by a storm happening outside and the clap of thunder happens so loud that it scares me. I'll jump out of bed. Um, and if you ever put yourself in a, a really dark room for a long time, just pitch black dark, can see nothing. Um, every little sound uh, begins to get amplified. Every little thing that happens begins to get amplified. And you get a little bit scared because you don't know what it is. And your mind maybe starts playing tricks on you. So storms and darkness are both scary things to encounter, but uh, these passages that we've read, these miracles that we've looked at this morning, they, they teach us that um, because of Jesus, we literally have nothing to fear this side of heaven. Now, that's not just to discount the fact that we do get afraid, but it's a truth that we can preach to ourselves that we have nothing to fear this side of heaven. Uh, everything on this earth is temporary. And so I want to take a look first at the storm in chapter 6. And what you might find helpful as you're listening um, is you might find it helpful just to turn back to chapter 6 and just start reading the words of that text as I work my way through commenting on it. Because I'm just going to work my way through it verse by verse for the most part. And you'll be able to track the story as I go. This story of the storm in chapter 6, it comes right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You might remember that with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And uh, after the people in the crowd basically start plotting to uh, take Jesus and then to make him into their political leader, what does he do? He retreats to the mountainside by himself as his disciples get into a boat and, and, and then they head across the lake. Uh, and cross the sea for Capernaum. And you see this in uh, verses 15 through 17. Now I can just imagine the scene. You might want to imagine it with me. If you need to, just close your eyes and, and just try to imagine the scene. Okay, uh, Jesus is up on the mountainside by himself. His disciples decide to get in this boat. They're out in the middle of the night. It's dark. There's a storm that begins to rage across the sea. And it's making their journey really rough because of the strong wind. So there they are, and they're rowing as hard as they can um, against the wind and the waves. And you might be able to imagine what this was like if you were in like a canoe trying to get across a small lake. They're, they're trying to row across this scene. It's really rough because of the strong wind and the waves. They're about three or four miles into their journey, right? Into this stormy journey. You know what it's like when it kind of feels like, man, I've been at this for a long time and there's just waves and wind of this storm keep coming against me it's not letting up it's continuing and it's not getting better in fact it feels like it's getting worse three or four miles into this storm and they're still rowing against it and what do they see they see jesus walking on the water and what happens they get frightened i think is the word that is used 
scared. And it's an interesting reminder for me because sometimes in the midst of the storms of life, it can be kind of scary when you see God show up. Why? Well, God doesn't typically show up the way that we expect him to, does he? The way that he shows up is, is actually pretty scary if you think about it. He's walking on water. Um, I imagine in the dark, it would have been hard to tell who this actually was, except there's a man walking on the water and we're in the midst of the storm. Is that a ghost, right? I love Jesus' response to his disciples, though. He recognizes their fear. He sees that. And what does he say? He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. I am convinced that those are the words that each of us needs to hear through every storm of life. We need to hear Jesus say, it's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. What was their response? John tells us that their response is that they became glad, they became happy, and they got Jesus into the boat with them. And then suddenly what happens? They, they arrive at their destination on solid, dry ground. So what does this story teach us? The story teaches us that Jesus is simply powerful over the forces of nature. Okay, so did you wrap your mind around this? Jesus is powerful over the forces of nature. So think about it. not only can he walk on water, uh, he's also able to calm the stormy wind and he's able to calm the waves that are beating his disciples to a bloody pulp. Anything in your life right now that you uh, feel like, man, this thing is beating me down to a bloody pulp. Everything that was coming against his disciples in this moment, he is powerful over. There is no force of nature that can stand against the power of Jesus. The wind obeys him. The waves obey him. The deep water that would have normally drowned a mortal man even obeys him. And that water becomes like a footstool to him, like a highway to him. It's no wonder that John says earlier in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says this about Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not was a God, but was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. So it's no surprise that if Jesus is the creator of all things... That all things would ultimately bow their knee in obedient submission to him. Do you think about that? If all things were created by God and all things will ultimately bow in submission to Jesus, then there is absolutely nothing in this life that could cause us to fear indefinitely. You'll struggle with momentary fears. But the way that you fight that fear is to know that Jesus is the creator of all things. Therefore, this thing that I am facing holds no power over me. 
Ultimately, my destiny is heaven with my Father who loves me next to my Messiah who saved me. So it's no surprise that if Jesus is the creator of all things, all things would ultimately bow their knee in obedient submission to him. Now the Apostle Paul agrees with this too. He further underscores this very same truth when he says that Jesus, and this is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he, he, he underscores this truth. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not meaning that Jesus was created, meaning that he was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to beat death. Therefore, by our trust in him, our greatest enemy that none of us will appear to escape, even that enemy, death, is beaten. What is life like after death? It's a question I think we may all be asking in this season right now. Watching the news um, this week, horrified uh, many times as I looked at what's happening across um, the country and the world. You know, in, in New York City, my understanding is that they have pulled in semi-truck trailers, freezer trailers, to put the bodies of dead people in. They're dying because of the virus because um, they don't have anywhere to put them. And they're dying at such a fast rate. Begs the question, if death were to come for you and I tomorrow, or a loved one, what then? This passage from Colossians 1 is an encouragement to us because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. He beat death. And if you and I have trusted in him as our savior, we've said, hey, I am a sinner. I'm a broken person. I'm an imperfect person, but Jesus is perfect. He's good and he's kind and he, and he gave himself in a self-giving, self-sacrificing way at the cross to pay the ransom and the penalty for my sin. If you trust in him that way, then even death has no hold over you. Paul moves on in Colossians 1 to say, for by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So again, Jesus is supremely powerful over the forces of nature. And in him, all things are held together. Why? Because he created all things. And if this is true, that means he created you and I. And if we have trusted in him, then we share in his death and his resurrection. And we have that to look forward to. The promise of heaven, the promise of a resurrection, this death on this planet, not the end. The moment that you die here, if you trust in Christ, you then step into the arms of your perfect Savior and your loving Father in heaven. There's nothing else in all of creation that can bring any comfort to our souls than that kind of a truth. You see, there's, there's no physical force of nature that can stand against the power of Jesus. Ultimately, he is sovereign in control over all things from wind to wave to depths of sea. Anything, everything in all of creation. So the question for you and I is, what storms do we really have to fear if Jesus is our Savior? What storm do we really have to fear if God is our Father? 
even if these truths bring you momentary comfort right now. Even if they do just right now. Isn't that a blessing? Take a look at the second story with me in uh, John chapter 9. The story of the darkness. Now this story uh, happens right on the heels of another confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in the temple. You'd look at chapter 8 to see that. Uh, and In that previous episode in chapter 8, uh, things really got so heated between Jesus and the Jews that the Jewish leaders actually picked up stones to kill Jesus because he made this audacious claim that he was God. And he said this, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's an audacious claim. Only God gets to make the claim of I am. So what does Jesus do when they start picking up stones? He leaves the temple uh, to avoid getting stoned to death. And after leaving the temple, Jesus encounters this man who has been born blind. And he explains to his disciples that this man was born blind, uh, not because of his own sin, not because of his parents' sin, uh, but because he had been chosen by, the, by God for the power of God to be displayed in and through him. So Jesus then further explains uh, that he is the light of the world, that the time to do uh, the work of bringing sight to the blind, light into the darkness. It's right now. It's right here. It's at this time. And then Jesus uh, proceeds to then spit in the mud, which I think is an interesting, fascinating thing. Uh, he spits in the mud, makes some mud with the dirt and the spit, and then smears that on the eyes of the blind man, then tells the man to go and wash his eyes out in the pool. Uh, the name of the pool is Sent, which is interesting because Jesus sends the man to the pool called Sent. It's also a word that's used for us as believers and that we are sent out into the world to help wash the eyes of the blind with the message of the gospel that others might see the same way. This man then obediently goes immediately and uh, he's, he's able to see. Now, after this happens, um, the man's neighbors begin arguing back and forth. Now, always got to love neighbors, right? Neighbors are always watching you. Got one next door. His name's Eric. He's a good dude. Uh, we like watching each other. It's kind of weird. We yelled at each other across the fence or across the yards. Um, but, uh, you know, neighbors have a tendency to kind of watch other neighbors, see what's going on. And I think that's what's happening in this text. Neighbors knew this man had been blind for so long. Now they see him walking around, able to see, and they're arguing back and forth in the text. And they're trying to see whether this man was really healed or not. And so this man jumps at the opportunity to share the story of what Jesus has done for him, even though he doesn't know where Jesus is. So neighbors uh, trying to figure out what to do, they decide maybe the best thing to do is to bring this man to the religious leaders so that they can weigh in on the situation, right? And from that point forward, this massive inquisition, questioning, um, starts to take place, begins to kind of unravel as the Pharisees question the man multiple times they begin to make judgments about jesus they begin to accuse jesus of being a sinner because this miracle happened heaven forbid on the sabbath even though the man had been who had been blind um he even says that he believes that jesus must be a prophet right 
Now that man's answer when he says, hey, he must be a prophet. I don't know what else to say. Uh, kind of leaves the Pharisees greatly disturbed. And, 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 the, and so what do they do? They, they grab uh, this man's parents. And they begin questioning his parents, hoping to catch them in some kind of discrepancy, right? Trying to catch a breakdown in the story. There must be something going on here. Um, they're so inquisitive. They're, they're so, they're hell-bent to get Jesus. Catch him in the act, right? Catch some kind of break in the story. Prove that somehow he's not really the Messiah. And in their minds, there's no way that this man could have been born blind. There's no way that Jesus actually healed this man. Why? Why? Because they had a they had a prejudgment already made about Jesus. They had already rejected Jesus. They'd already decided that anyone claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, that person who claims that should be excommunicated, thrown out of the church. So long story short, the, the Jewish leaders hated Jesus so much that they were doing everything they could to attempt an all-out character assassination on Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Or somebody say... That's crazy. That's crazy. Okay. Thank you. That's crazy. What do they do? They bring the man back in for questioning. They try to convince him that Jesus is a sinner. And uh, that his, uh, the blind man who now sees, his response um, is, is actually pretty good. Because his response is simply argue that the only way that he could have been healed by Jesus. I mean, catch the logic. The only way that he could have been healed by Jesus is if, Jesus was actually a worshiper of God. And then he even gets frustrated with the Pharisees, their, their line of questioning. And he asks them, hey, hey, do you guys want to be uh, his disciples? Now, of course, that, that infuriates the Pharisees, right? They, they get ticked. They toss the dude out of the synagogue after shaming him for being born in utter sin. Therefore, in their self-righteous mindset, this dude's unqualified because he was born in utter sin. Uh, he's unqualified. Teach them about the things of God. We well, catch the implication here. Heaven forbid if a sinner ever teaches the things of God to others. Self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees. These guys are great models of what it looks like to be spiritually blind while believing that you're just fine. Of course, this is just what Jesus confronts in these religious hypocrites after he finds the healed man. He asks him if he believes in the Son of Man. Now, the reality is that only someone who understands their spiritual blindness will be able to ask for spiritual eyesight. And, and only Jesus has the power to give sight to the blind. I, I love the passage where Jesus says, hey, I, I didn't come to this earth for those who don't think they're sick. Insert those who don't think they're blind or lame or hard-hearted. He says, I came for those who believe and know that they are sick, blind, lame, hard-hearted. Really, uh, Luke gets after this in his gospel when he records Jesus saying this. Chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, Jesus stands up in a synagogue and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a crazy claim for someone to make. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is what Jesus does. All right, he, he proclaims good news to those who are poor in spirit. He proclaims freedom to those who have been in captivity to the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. He gives sight to the blind. He gives freedom to the oppressed. He proclaims God's grace. It really is a, a radically uh, different message and ministry in contrast to the Pharisees' message and ministry. If you could just take both messages and ministry, set them up side by side, it's a massive contrast. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were, were, they were, they were um, so captured by this thought that if they just did the right thing, God would bless them, put their nation back together again, follow the law to the T, and God would lift the curse on them as a nation, would restore the nation of Israel. Jesus' message and ministry is really saturated with pictures of transformation and freedom and light. But the Pharisees, their message and their ministry was saturated with legalistic rule keeping. Touch this, don't touch that. Drink this, don't drink that. Eat this, don't eat that. Do this, don't do that. That was their message. How easy is it for that message to become our message? To shroud it in desires for God's goodness. And yet Jesus, when he steps onto the scene, he does things radically different. Jesus is the light of the world. And he brings light to those who are living in darkness. And so the question is, where do you need to ask Jesus to shed his light in your darkness? Where, where has the darkness engulfed you uh, what what parts of your life are consumed with darkness right now uh, before i move into just a real short conclusion and get us out of here I, I i was thinking last night as i went to sleep that if sometimes it's the storm that comes first and then it's the darkness that sets in after because when the storms of life hit when your marriage goes on tilt when the finances in the bank don't cover, when the car breaks down, when your kid rebels, when, when that old addiction comes back, whatever the storm is that you're facing right now, oftentimes it's the storm that appears to come first for us and then it's the darkness. We retreat back. We don't know what to do. We cope with things in really interesting ways. We hide out. Uh, we, we, we try to medicate the pain and the hurt and the fear. And yet in the midst of that, as that darkness sets in, that's where Jesus wants to step in and say, here I am. It's me. Don't be afraid. So in conclusion, we've, we've learned that Jesus is powerful over the forces of nature. We've also learned that Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to those who are living in spiritual darkness. But the question is, why does this matter? I, I think it's abundantly clear, but I just want to spend a moment here. Like, again, we always got to ask, what would difference do these stories make in our lives? If we know that the Gospel of John, according to John 20, uh, 31, if we know that the whole purpose of his writing this Gospel is so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, 
eternal life, then what's the logical application of these two stories? Seems to me that we're uh, living in very fearful, very uncertain times, and we're in desperate need of the God who is infinitely powerful over all the storms of life. He's able to give sight to those in darkness. So there are many things to fear today. Again, there's this pandemic we find ourselves in. It's touched all of our lives somehow in various ways. It can cause uh, fear even just a little bit or a lot bit for some. It's impacted our jobs, our, our family members, our communities, our, our recreation, our education, even our foreseeable future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the funny thing is, is we never knew what was going to happen tomorrow. None of us knew what's going to happen tomorrow. It's just that we love control. We love to believe that we know. I think in this season, God's showing us that we really don't know, but he does. So there is much uncertainty. There's, there's much darkness. There's much stormy weather to stand and to, to row against in this season, right? So whether this has caused a little bit of fear for you or a ton of fear for you, the reality is that this pandemic thing that's affected us all in, in various different fearful ways, we can look at these two stories and we can be reminded that Jesus is powerful over the storms of life. He may not take this storm away right now, but I can tell you there is a place where this storm goes away. Jesus is the light of the world. He gives sight to those who are living in spiritual darkness. So again, storms are very scary. Darkness can be very scary. But again, these passages teach us that because of Jesus, we have nothing to fear this side of heaven. We've not been given a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery to that spirit. We've been given a spirit of sonship. If you trust in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of, of a good and loving father who gave his only son for you so that by trusting in him, you might have eternal life. We have a savior in Christ Jesus who went to the cross for us, died a horrible death for us. That's what this season is all about. This is Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And then from this point forward, it's Passion Week. And in a few days on Good Friday, he dies horribly. The cool thing is that three days later, next Sunday, he got up out of that grave and he walked away and he left the tomb empty. And he returned to the right hand of the Father in glory. And he's promised us an eternity in heaven where there is no sin, no fear, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no more tears. When you think about uh, what heaven might be like in this moment, in this time, it, it might be somewhat similar, although this falls terribly short in comparison. But it, it might be similar to how much we probably all miss each other right now. I thought about how much I miss being in the same room with you guys every Sunday morning. Being able to give hugs, being able to catch up with each other, being able to pray for one another in person and serve each other communion and hear each other's voices as we sing. We haven't had that in weeks. And to look forward to that day when that comes, that's a little tiny slice of heaven. That's the kind of hope that we have when we think about the cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. Because of this, we can rest assured that no matter what happens in the world around us, we have three things. We have the joy of the cross. We have the hope of the empty tomb. And we have our ultimate destiny 
in heaven as sons and daughters of the King. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then Charity and I are going to sing a song for you to close this out. Father, thank you so much for these passages. Thank you for the people who are watching today. And I pray, God, that you would use it to bring encouragement and strength. Help us to stand firm as we row against the waves of the storm and the darkness that has, in some regards, permeated the entire world. Help us to be uh, lights in the world, just as you, Jesus, have been the light of the world. We thank you for your work at the cross. We thank you for your work at the empty tomb. We thank you for the promise of heaven. Ask that you be with us and give us your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.